G'day, I'm Bob Carr, Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. Today I'm joined by Barry Lee, the author of the book, The New Chinese, How They Are Shaping Australia. Australia is a country, of course, built on immigration and cultural assimilation, and the New Chinese are now an integral part of Australian society. In his book, Barry describes his personal journey of immigration to Australia from China, including the challenges that he and his family confronted and their achievements. The New Chinese is an essential guide to the history, the culture, the mindset of Chinese migrants in Australia. Barry, welcome to the program. Thank you, Professor Carr. And let me begin by saying, why did you feel the need to write the book? Well, I suppose I was inspired by the Australian people because uh, I've been here for uh, 14 years and I've got frequently asked about my country, uh, where I was from. And uh, there's a lot of um, misunderstanding or gap in the knowledge of the China they had in mind and what it is like today. Uh, so after a while, I feel a bit tired of answering all the questions over and over again. So I thought it would be nice if I put in a book and I would say, please read this book and I have all the answers in here. The most common question? Well, the most common questions is um, they picture China still as poor as in the 70s, you know, uh, Cultural Revolution, things like that, because the last popular book in Australia about China was probably Mao's Last Dancer, where the picture was quite different from what it was today. So they were surprised about seeing so many Chinese migrants and international students, especially with their purchasing power and their uh, level of English or um, pretty much everything. Barry, what do you mean by the, the new Chinese? Yeah, so so by my definition, the new Chinese, I mean any Chinese was born in mainland China after 1949, the establishment of the People's Republic of China, which you know, we call from Australia the Communist China. But you also see 1990 as an important cut-off date. Well, there's a couple of important cut-off dates. One is 1975-76, when we towards the end of Cultural Revolution yep. and, uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping's open and reform. That's an important cutoff. And then 1990 is an important cutoff as well. Why? Why do, you, why do you focus on 1990? Is that the stepping up of the reform, pro- economic reforms that came around that time? Uh, it's because the Deng Xiaoping's tour to southern China yeah. to reinstate China's um, view on economic development and the opening of the market. And uh, from 1990, China's growth has gone to the next stage where you had Shenzhen opened up and have uh, uh, you know more economic activities. And it just I've been to the museum in Shenzhen. It oh. tells the story <clears throat> of his uh, Great Southern Tour. Yep. It shows examples of the first manufactured products, the primitive radios and mm. uh, heaters, and the the difference between Shenzhen in the 1990s and Shenzhen today is a symbol to me yeah. of uh, the transformation of China. That's right. Yes, that's why it's important. Yeah. If I think about the new China, contemporary China, I think about a a journey on the the city rail system in Chongqing. Mm-hmm. It was on a Saturday night. Mm-hmm. Um, the people there were um, ordinary folk going about their business. A lot of young people. I didn't, it didn't strike me as an ageing society based on the people in the carriage. Um, dressed in casual or sporting, sporting clothes. Right. Full of advertising. In every sense, it was 
to us, to Australians, a normal society. Yeah. Completely different yep. from the China of Mao's era. Well, I wasn't born back then, but uh, from what I read and learned, it's very, very different. Do you think there are particular difficulties for Chinese coming to Australia, getting established here, or is it, or is it a, an upbeat and happy integration? Into Australia, there has been many challenges,、uh, and the challenge is different for different generations. For example, for people who came here before the seventies,、um, they would struggle financially and try to look for the entry-level jobs. They probably don't speak as well English as other groups, so it's it's a、uh, fight for material、uh, things in your life and、uh, to raise their kids,、uh, establish family, etc. And for my generation.、Uh, I think I'm one of the first generation of、uh, Chinese from mainland China that can afford universities、uh, not sponsored by the government. So we had the opportunity to、uh, learn advanced knowledge in Australia, and then had much、uh, less difficulty in finding a professional job, etc., compared with the previous generation of Chinese migrants. And if you look at the new ones today,、uh, those who were born after 1990, we call them 90 后 post 90 Chinese. They normally from pretty good family background. Doesn't have to work part time. So after nineteen ninety,、um, taking prosperity and rising living standards. Yeah. Better housing for granted. Exactly. So when I was young, we didn't have you know electricity or running water even in the city. And、uh, what for, city was it?、Uh, the city of Suzhou. Uh, which was、uh, quite no running water in the apartment block. No, so we, we get with buckets. Yeah, and、uh, I remember getting water from the well. Yeah, even in the city because there was no in running... a courtyard for the apartment. That's、block. right. Yeah, yeah. This is an age-old story of、um, industrialization, industrialization、yes. phase in human history and slums in Glasgow or yeah, I、uh, still Dussel- remember the... Dusseldorf. It would have been the same excitement that when I first had the you know the flushing toilet. As opposed to the well,、tradition. I remember that having, <laughs> having grown、yeah. up without uh, without uh, a sewage system. Yeah, so that's how much、uh, change that my generation has witnessed. Yeah, and for the young generation, they grew up with、uh, computers and even private cars in their home. So、yeah. in, in the city,、uh, so it's very different. When you went back to、uh, China,、yeah. what struck you about the the change? Well, the biggest surprise was the economic development while I was away, because um, um, you know there's huge development between 2004 and 2010,、uh, and one of the side effect of economic development was inflation. So everything got、uh, twice as or three times more expensive.、Yes. Um, well, some of them are still cheaper than Australia, but I had my own price list before I came to Australia. So when I Got back. It's very hard to fit into the new system, and everything just so expensive.、Uh, especially properties in large cities,、uh, Beijing and Shanghai, because during that period, the population in these cities literally doubled.、Um, so housing become very expensive. The wealth gap in China. Do you think that will get less as the economy matures? Some economists believe that that happens. So about the gap, you know, in during the Cultural Revolution, we didn't have that gap. Um, pretty much everyone was equally poor in the country because the country was poor. There's not even enough food, so we don't have a problem where you have rich people and the poor people arguing. And but since Deng Xiaoping's time, we figure out it's stupid to make everyone equally poor. So the policy is some people. 
please get rich first, so you can lead the society into economic development, and then that created a gap. But I'm very glad that the current leader, uh, President Xi, has is trying very hard to address the gap between rich and poor by supporting the poor to escape from poverty. So from my personal view, uh, the gap is going to reduce. Do um, do Chinese worry about about human rights and the political system? Um, Yes, but not in the same way as we uh, worry in Australia, because in my book there's a chapter called Chinese-style democracy. So we have our democracy. It works different from the Australian one. And uh, you know, from my angle, this is what I call diversity in, in the whole global environment, because in a country, people would have different views on how certain things could run. And I think it's perfectly normal that the Chinese people have a different mindset about democracy. And where, where would you see democracy operating in the Chinese system? It is operating at the moment uh, that suits our country. It's really hard for me to make further comment because I'm not an expert in politics. Uh, from my experience, that China needs a strong and a stable uh, leadership for economic and other purposes, and uh, we currently have a pretty good one. Would that be the, the most widespread view in China? Well, I can only say my personal view, um, yeah. because I don't have statistics on that. Yes, but would, um, is that compatible with also having the right to grumble about government to think the government should be do, being do, should be doing more on environment or anti-corruption, for example. Uh, yes, certainly. In the past, we had concerns about <coughs> corruptions and environmental problems. And the good news is, uh, from uh, since President Xi, uh, there's a lot of actions uh, from the government at every level to control corruptions and uh, environmental issues, uh, especially with this new uh, CPC Congress and the National Congress that's happening right now. Um, there had been some really positive change in the past five years, and I expect to see more coming very soon. So you think uh, Chinese are very positive about the direction of their country? Uh, do you think the, the majority, a big majority of Chinese would, be, would answer yes to the question, is China moving in Positively, the right direction? yes, absolutely. What would be the thing they'd most want to see government do for them in the next 10 or 15 years? The current you know, focus from the news I heard is um, to eliminate poverty. That's what they call the absolute poverty, people living uh, below the poverty line. Um, because you know, as for a socialism country, um, it is very important that people have access to basic stuff. And that's the government's focus in the past five years from what I heard. I was not there. But it's working really well from the news I heard. Can I ask this question? You say in your book something very interesting. You say, among the Chinese community in Australia, we generally find the longer we stay overseas, the more positive yep. we are about our home country. Yes. And that is because the longer we live in Australia, we understand more how democracy works in Australia uh, and other uh, Western countries. And we normally come to the conclusion that um, um, you know, the system we had in Western countries is not perfect. There's a lot of issues at every level of government, uh, especially last year you know, when um, President Trump was elected as a U.S. president, there's a lot of criticism. Uh, there must be something wrong with the system. Um, I don't know because I don't vote there or anything. But uh, it's, it's the more you understand that the seemingly perfect world is not perfect, then you start to understand there are certain issues in China that has to be addressed in a certain way. So we tend to understand more. That's interesting. And that would apply as well to viewing 
Australian politics, even though it's not as uh, debauched as American politics is at the present time? Well, again, I don't uh, understand much about politics, given that I don't vote in Australia. But uh, generally speaking, I think, I think we have, have a system that's very suitable for us. And it seems like China has a system very suitable for China. Do you, um, do you recognize the term the bamboo ceiling? Yes. What, well, do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, it's, it's an American author. Uh, she talked about the bamboo ceiling in the States, which refer to if you are from an Asian cultural background, it's really hard for you to progress into senior management uh, because people see you as Asian, uh, which is a, what they suggest is a discrimination towards minority. And my personal view, that well, Asians is not the only group. Apparently, you had an issue with uh, females getting into senior leadership in the past in every country. And uh, Australia is very active uh, in addressing these issues with diversity, whether it's female or Asians. And what I love to say to my Asian friends is, I think bamboo ceiling is a ceiling inside your heart. If you believe in it, it's going to limit you. If you don't believe in it, it will go into, it's going to work for you. Do you think um, uh, the, chi- the big Chinese community in Australia might have been hurt by some of the stories that, that got headlines in the Australian media um, throughout last year, throughout 2017? Personally, it doesn't impact my life, uh, but I, I, I do believe it has negative uh, impact on the Chinese living in Australia, mostly because there was an uh, inherent misunderstanding between uh, people who had the old mindset and the reality today. Uh, so they might view something to be external or different, so they get scared. We are all afraid of people that, things and people that we're not familiar with. I think that's pretty much the main reason. Do you, what do you think the answer to it is? Should the Chinese community organise and complain to politicians when they think their allegiance to Australia is being questioned? Well, again, I'm not an expert in that, but um, well, I know um, you know there's a lady called Daphne Low Kelly who's been very active um, in the Chinese yes. uh, Australian Chinese Historical Society, and they ask a lot about, you know, apology to the old migrants in mm. the 1800s, etc. So it seemed to me that uh, the Chinese community has done some important work to bring the balance or the understanding to the main society. Uh, but on the other hand, everyone I know in Australia, uh, regardless where they're from, they are all very open-minded. Um, and um, I, I, don't, I don't see that to be a really big issue to me or to the people I know, to be honest. But, but some of the... Some of the extreme material that's appeared has implied that the the Chinese community in Australia is susceptible to um, Chinese Communist Party propaganda Mm. and are therefore a threat somehow to Australian sovereignty. And that claim hasn't been made about other migrant communities, although in the past some migrant communities have got bad publicity, but not quite like the publicity the Chinese community has had to suffer? Um, From my perspective, I think that's because of the lack of understanding of what the people who grow up in communist China, which is basically the new Chinese I'm trying to describe in here, how they think and their experience and uh, what would they do in certain situations. And they just don't have that common sense that uh, this group has, so they see that as an issue. Because I know how 
we think. So I don't see that as an issue. So the answer to that, I would highly encourage them to read my book, and then their fear would go away. Well, that's that's a great <laughs> recommendation. The author recommending his book, uh, Barry Lee, the author of The New Chinese, How They're Shaping Australia, published by Wiley and available in bookshops. Uh, Barry, thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Carr. Our next episode will feature Meriden Viral, Director of the East Asia Program at the Lowy Institute for International Policy. She'll be joining ACRI's Deputy Director, James Lawrenson, to discuss China's aid in the Pacific. You can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, or listen to all episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There you'll also find out more about ACRI's research and events. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.